Well, if you have your Bible, I want to ask you to please turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll be there this morning. Now, I want to briefly give you an overview of what we're going to be learning each night, just to sort of uh, set the table a little bit as to what's happen, happening in VBS. Tonight, you're going to be studying from Luke 15, 1 through 7. Jesus told the story of a shepherd who lost one sheep out of his 100. And he just said, oh well, 99's pretty good, don't worry about that one. No, that's not what he said. He went after that one sheep. That one sheep was important to the shepherd, even though it wandered off. And guess what? You matter to God, period. It's not what you have to offer. It's not how far off you've wandered. He's after you. You are important to him. That's tonight. Monday night's lesson is entitled, God Gives Me Hope. And we'll talk about the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead by Jesus in John chapter 11. Jesus having power over death tells us that not only does he have power over Lazarus' death and power over his own death, but he has power over our death. And one day God is going to set things right, bring an end to sin, and set things right. Tuesday night, we'll look at John 20, 19 through 31. Thomas needed to see the risen Christ in order to believe. Now there are ways that Jesus helps us believe without directly seeing him. So really be praying that night because that's the night we'll be giving the invitation openly to the kids and uh, down through the, uh, the children age, or children age kids through third grade. And we're hoping that people make decisions. Wednesday night, the lesson's entitled Jesus Loves Me and will come from selected passages in the book of John. Uh, one of the reasons that Jesus loves us is so that we can learn how to show that same love to others. And that's Wednesday night. And then Thursday night's lesson is Jesus Gives Me Joy. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, Acts 16, 23 through 34, the story of Paul and Silas and the Philippian jailer. What a great story. There is a difference between being happy and being filled with joy. And you're going to talk about that that night. Now this morning, we're going to look at the passage where we find the theme verse for Vacation Bible School this week uh, in, in 2 Peter 1, and that's verse 3. So would you stand with me as we read down through verse 11? It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Forever, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you, are, you will never fall, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. let's pray together. God, as we open your word this morning and study this passage, God, I pray that you would open our hearts. 
God, there are things that you want to say to people in this place. It's not an accident for them being here this morning. God, you have a message for them, and I pray you would share that with them through the words that we talk about and the passages we look at this morning, God. Use this time. God, we do continue to pray for Pastor Scott and Ms. Connie as they're away. Give them a great time of rest. Thank you for the privilege and uh, um, honor to be able to speak this morning, God. Help me move aside and you speak uh, to hearts today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. How many of you have ever smelled stagnant water? Yeah, I hear it, ew, and I see faces kind of going like this because that experience, if you ever smell that, is not a very pleasant one. And we, that kind of sticks in our brain, doesn't it? Well, I have a similar story and a similar experience. Uh, we had a miscommunication for an event here at the church, and down in the core, the trash cans did not get empty. And they sat there for several days, and when I found them, they were not smelling particularly good. They were also very full. And when I got to the dumpster, I realized that the dumpster was also very full to the point where you couldn't really slide the side doors open because the trash would fall out. So I said, well, okay, I'm going to um, go over here. I, I got the overstuffed bag out of the can. You know, I had to struggle with it. And I decided then to just hurl it over the top, intending it for, to, uh, for it to softly land on the other trash, and I would just go on my way. Things don't always work out like we planned. As I hurled the overstuffed bag over the top edge of the dumpster, there must have been something sharp sticking up or a burr on the side of the dumpster because when I got the half the bag over, it broke, splashing all the several-day-old garbage juice all over me. It gets better. I don't know about you, but when I exert a lot of energy and effort and, and, and hurl something heavy, I open my mouth. Yeah, you're getting the picture. I think there was sweet tea, lemonade, and something Italian served three or four days earlier. Thank goodness for hepatitis B and C shots. If you could lose your salvation, I would have. (laughs) Things that sit around are not pleasant. I want to talk about that. How does that relate to the passage this morning? You know, I think that sometimes people make a decision for Christ, sort of tuck it away as an insurance policy for when they die in the far-off future, then just sort of coast as a believer. And just like those trash cans and, and stagnant water, they sit and they sour. How does this happen? How does this happen? Let me give you a couple reasons. First of all, we we refer to our eternal life like it starts when you die and go to heaven. Your eternal life begins the moment you become a child of God. Sure, there are going to be some things that change when you die and go to heaven. You're going to get rid of that sin-cursed body. Praise the Lord, right? You're going to go into the presence of Jesus. You're going to see loved ones that have gone on before you. Amen? That will be an awesome day. But so many times, Christians check out. They say, well, I'm good. I got saved. And hoping that Jesus comes back before I die. die, But if not, I'm going to heaven. 
Seth Williams here this morning? He usually sits over in this area. Seth, are you here? I know we have had to change some seats. He's on a cruise. Okay. Lucky him. But Seth, if you get an email from Seth, he has a quote at the end of his emails, and I love it. Let me read it to you. It says, what will be the most important date on your tombstone? People will forget your birthday. People will forget the day you die. However, your dash will be what your family, friends, and coworkers remember. What are you doing with your dash? Well, that's something to think about. What's another reason this happens? Growing as a believer takes work. It takes hard work. Growing as a believer goes against our flesh. Growing as a believer will not be a popular thing out there in the world, I can tell you. You may be thinking, well, I haven't been called to be a pastor or missionary. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I thought that's why we pay the preacher. Well, we do have things that we're called to do. Uh, and, and maybe we even think this. He needs to handle the, the heavy lifting when it comes to spiritual things. And we do. We need to be about the things God's called us to do. But one of those main things is to help train you. Do the work of ministry. Jesus did not call a single pastor to be one of his disciples. You ever thought about that? Now the Apostle Paul, who was trained as a Pharisee, would have been the closest thing. But he was imprisoning Christians and condoning their death when Jesus came and called him. What are we doing to do the work of the ministry? Look back at verses 3 and 4. It says, His, God's divine power, has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's talking about now, folks. Not later on, when we die and go to heaven. God has, through His his power, granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What does man have without God? I want you to sum that up on your mind for just a minute. You know, I have a hard time relating to this because church life and being around Christians has always been a part of my life. Kind of shared a little bit with you earlier. But even though I didn't make a personal decision to ask Jesus to be my Savior until seven, I was in church. But can I sum up quickly what man has without God? Now, there's positive experiences, but here it is. 70 years of heartache and disappointment, and then you die. Have you ever thought about that? I know that sounds pessimistic, but folks, life is hard as a believer. What is it like for people who don't have the Lord? What is it like for people who don't have brotherly, uh, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ? How do they do it? The sad commentary is, many of them don't. I don't know if you've seen statistics lately, but the stats on suicide have gone up. Is that because there's no hope? Folks, we have hope in Christ Jesus. God has the power to make a way for man to have life and to help him live a godly life now. Man does not have the power to do this. 
Now, there are a lot of people who think they could be good enough to earn God's favor. Uh, let me share with you a couple verses what God says about our good works. Familiar verses, many of you know these. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Your translation may say a filthy rag. That says that the bad things that we do are filthy, right? No, not the bad things. It says the righteousness, the righteous things we do are filthy. When we start comparing ourselves to the righteousness and holiness of God, we are in trouble. We are in trouble. But I want to compare myself to the guy over there that's worse than me. Folks, we can always find somebody worse than us. We can't compare ourselves to them. They're not the measuring stick. Jesus Christ is the measuring stick. He was perfect. We are not. So what's the point of even trying? 1 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus did that. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. There are some things in verse 4 by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God has made promises to us that he will keep. One of his promises is of salvation. Romans 10.9 says this, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you gone beyond knowing the facts of what Jesus did? There's a lot of people that celebrate Easter. They know it's something about Jesus dying on the cross and being buried and, and, and rising again on the third day. But have you gone beyond the facts of that? Believing is trusting. I like the phrase, fully resting in Jesus dying for you and the sacrifice that he made. His righteousness is good enough. Really believing uh, in this starts a relationship that should continue to grow. Peter goes on in verse 5 to show us that our faith in Jesus is just a starting point. Look at it, just the beginning of it. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Hang on. We supplement our faith? Is there more required of salvation? No. But there are things that we do after we are saved. We don't just get saved and then sit back and say, okay, all done, waiting for Jesus to come back. And what does it say? It says that we supplement our faith, what we believe, with virtue. With virtue. Now, he, he should, he's saying that we should do these things as a, re, as a result of becoming a child of God. Doing these things don't cause us to be a child of God. Doing good things should be a result of becoming a child of God. And this is consistent throughout the scripture. Ephesians 2.10 says this. Paul's talking to believers. He says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them, continue to walk in them. So becoming a Christian, we should want to do good things to serve the Lord and walk in them. Philippians 2.12 says this, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his, his, good, his good pleasure. Now this, the words work out, 
That is a word that is used similarly for us when you guys work out in your garden. I don't know about you guys, but I love a good tomato sandwich. I mean, what do you do? You go to the store and usually buy that little seedling plant and you put it out in the ground and you put, you put it in the ground and you just walk away and leave it and hope it has tomatoes, right? No. You go out there and probably when you pull the dirt back, you put some fertilizer in there, you get it all mixed up good and you plant that in, you get it around the roots nice and, and all of a sudden, well, you got weeds that come up, right? Got to pull those weeds out and you got to do that. Pretty much go out there and check on it every day because, man, those weeds come up like crazy. We can't get our grass to come up but the greed, the weeds will come up, no problem, right? Yeah, Adam, thanks a lot. No, I'm kidding. Anyway, we pull the weeds, we, we put water on it, we wait patiently, right? We stand back and all of a sudden that little green sprout comes out, it gets a little bigger, and man, it starts turning red, and you're like, oh boy. And you get out there, and you finally go out there, and it makes that noise, you know what I'm talking about when you pull it off the stem, like, you know, kind of pulls off there when it's right. And man, you know what I like to do? I like to skin that tomato. I take the skin off and cut a nice thick slab. And I get two pieces of bread and I put on Hellman's, not Duke's. Hellman's. <laughs> hey, we're Carolina fans here, not Duke fans, okay? Hellman's. So you, you put that on the bread and you put that slab of tomato on there and get salt and pepper on it. And you, cl- and you guys can right now taste it in your mouth biting through that sandwich, right? I mean, you got Niagara Falls going on right now, right, in your mouth? I need to be, I need to be on the food channel. Oh. But, man, that tomato sandwich, when it gets to this point, when you bite into it, you got to think about it. That took a lot of work. That fruit took a lot of work. Guys, it's the same way as a believer. To produce fruit as a believer, it takes work. Cultivation. That's what it's about. And that's what we need, need to be about. That's what Paul says when he says, work out, work at your own salvation with fear and trembling. Produce godly fruit. Peter goes on to explain that process. Look back again at verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. That's the first one, with virtue. Now, what is virtue? The literal translation of that word means the God-given ability to perform heroic deeds. That's what it means. When a person gets saved, the way they do things, the way they think, the motives behind what they uh, they do begin to change. Life begins to have a different purpose. The acts I do now are not for my glory. They have a purpose in God's plan. And this whole thing of life becomes much bigger than me. God has a purpose. And folks, if there is blood flowing through our veins, if there is breath in our lungs, and we are a believer, we are still here, God has a purpose for our life. Are we seeking it and doing it? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or you may say, everything has become new in your passage. Faith, virtue, and then what? Back to verse 5. And virtue with knowledge. That's the next step. This is understanding the truth of God that translates to changed living. Now, this is a continual process for those of you that are believers. Now, I want to ask, where are all the Sunday school teachers? I need you to raise your hand. If you're a Sunday school teacher, put them up high. I see them. 
They're, guys, we, you can put them back down. We have some great Sunday school teachers, and if you're not involved in a Sunday school class, I want to challenge you. Get plugged in. This is a small group where you really dig in and get into God's Word, and that's where you find, really, your close friends in the church. That's where you find them. And I want to encourage you to find a Sunday school class. If you're not in one, do that. But if I were to bring up all of these Sunday school teachers and bring them up here on this stage, I can almost guarantee you that they would tell you that because they have to teach, because they've got to get into, their, into the Word, whether it's from children up through adults, they cannot go in and fake. Well, I guess you could, but you're gonna, people are going to call you out on it. You're going to stand before a class. You've got to dig in and study the Bible. And teachers, you would probably agree with me that you have learned so much by putting, been putting, been, been being put under the gun to say, you know what, I've got to be ready. But you look and you go, you know what, I have learned more about the Bible in teaching it and being disciplined than I would have if I wasn't teaching. You do. You learn so much. And here's the other thing that happens. And, and this is great for, for teachers and pastors. Pastor Scott gets totally excited about this. He'll text me. This happens to him. He'll be sitting there and he'll be studying. It may be a lot of times on Saturday he's finishing up things. He'll text me and he'll say, Kevin, you're not going to believe what I, just, what I just found out. You're sitting there reading through the scripture and, and learning about it and all of a sudden God reveals one of those deep truths to you. You know what I'm talking about, teachers? And you're like, whoa, this is awesome. And you're not only excited about it because you've understood it and God revealed it to you. You're going to get to go to your class Sunday. Right, now. Right, Janet? To your little kids, and you're going to be able to share that truth with them too. And they're going to go, oh, and those light bulbs are going to come on. And you're like, man, this is awesome. I mean, for a teacher and for a pastor, that is like a kid at Christmas kind of thing. And Scott's that way. He'll be like, Kevin, you're not going to believe what I just found out. He's texting me, like big, long text. You know, I'm like, wait. <laughs> he gets excited. We get excited. So faith, virtue, knowledge. And go on to verse 6. And knowledge with self-control. What does that mean? Your flesh does not control you. That's part of spiritual maturity. It's in that process. In Peter's day, this would have been a term used as an athlete who was self-disciplined, who was training. This comes after knowledge, because I want you to think about this. A believer needs to know what he's supposed to be a part of and not be a part of before he can be disciplined doing what he should be doing and not doing what he shouldn't be doing, right? So it comes after knowledge. As we look at these, these come in, a, in the right order. This knowledge comes from studying the Scripture, but it also comes from listening to the Holy Spirit. Now, when a person is saved, the Holy Spirit lives inside them. That's kind of a, a mystery. We don't know. Uh, over in Colossians, it talks about it being a mystery. Christ in you. That the Holy Spirit lives in us. That's crazy. But the Holy Spirit speaks in a still small voice telling us what to do, where to be at work, convicts us when we're about to do something we shouldn't be doing. I don't know if you guys have heard it lately, but our vice president, Mike Pence, has said he has a relationship with the Holy Spirit and God speaks to him. Guys, he's been criticized over that big time. People even said he needs his head examined because of it. But people in the world don't understand that when you become a believer and Christ lives in you, the Holy Spirit lives in you, God talks to you. And you listen to his still small voice. We call it a still small voice, but sometimes it's almost yelling in my mind, trying to convince, Kevin, please do this. That's how we learn what to do and what not to do. Through hearing his voice and finding God's will in his word, we can be self-controlled. What well, it says we need to be about that. 
Back to verse six. And self-control with steadfastness or perseverance. This is that staying power or endurance to do what's right no matter what. Do what's right no matter what. This is not being against everything, but being for what is right. How many times are Christians known for what they're against rather than being passionate about what they're for? There should be nothing that brings us more joy than doing the will of God, bringing Him glory, and having fun doing it. Folks, we need to have fun serving the Lord. So many times we, we have a long, pious face and we walk around like, oh, this is the hardest thing ever. We serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords and we have the cure for sin. Steadfastness, perseverance. I was recently talking about this very thing with one of our members. There will be those mountaintop experiences that we have in our walk with the Lord. It might be that mission trip. You can think of one right now, one of those mountaintop experiences. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a weekend retreat. Maybe it's seeing a friend or a family member get saved. Maybe it's that answer to prayer that God brought about in your life. That mountaintop. There's also those valleys, right? There's the valleys, those tough days when we experience heartache, a sickness, a death of someone we love. But what is God saying here? God is looking for us to rise to a level of consistency, of steadfast growth that continues no matter what. We're going to have valleys. We're going to have mountains. But God wants us to be here growing steadily. Steadfastness. You know, this morning in Sunday school, hopefully, you got a ballot for uh, denominations. If you didn't, there's some on the counter as you leave today. Folks, look at that paper. Because on that paper lists the qualifications of deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3. talks about that. And when you begin to write those names down, and you're praying about who you should nominate, I want you to think about people in our church that are steadfast. Men in our church that are steadfast. And what do I mean by that? They're faithful. They attend church. They're here. They serve in our church. Look for people who are like this, steadfast. No matter what, they're going to do what's right. Doesn't mean we don't ever make mistakes, don't get that wrong, but somebody who is steadfast and faithful. Back to verse 6. And steadfast with godliness. Now, does this mean we become, we become like God? There are some religions and cults out there would tell you that you can become a God. It's not what we believe. Peter used this term back in verse 3. In verse 4, he says that you may be, become partakers of the divine nature. You and I should be striving to become more like God every day, but we will never be a God or equal to God. Never. So what does this mean to be godly? John MacArthur writes in his commentary in this passage that being godly is to live reverently, loyally, and obediently. I want you to think about those three things, reverently. A deep and genuine respect for God. Do we have that kind of attitude towards God and, and the things of God? Loyally, firm and constant support or allegiance. And then this third one, probably the most difficult, obediently. Willingly to com- willingness to comply submissively. There are a lot of people doing things and obeying the Lord, but they're not doing it with the right spirit. 
do this again for God. Do we do it willingly, submissively, knowing that it's for His glory and His will? Do you see that these characteristics are building on each other and they progressively get harder to really do? The next one is in verse 7. It says, In godliness with brotherly affection. Now, how many of you grew up with a sibling? Would you raise your hand? Or are growing up with a sibling? I see some of you doing that too. Yeah, I, I, I have... Actually, I'm, second, I'm the second child in our family birth order of five. Uh, five children. My brother Keith is two and a half years older than me. Uh, he is a UPS man in the area. You, you probably unwillingly didn't know that he's been your UPS man. He's worked in Kannapolis, Harrisburg, uh, Mooresville, um, all over this area. Um, he's been with him, I guess, 25, 26 years. Is that right, Mom? Almost 30 years? Yeah, it's, yeah, time flies. But anyway, he and I get along great now. I mean, we have no problem. But back growing up, Mom and Dad will tell you, we got in some knockdown drag outs. And I'll have to say, he's two and a half years older than me. Most of the time, he got the better of me. I hate to admit it. He, but there, there would be times, there would be times when I would actually beat him in a game of one-on-one. He was really good at basketball. And sometimes I'd just get lucky, or yeah, he was having a bad day, and I'd beat him every once in a while. Or he knew when he really made me mad, but he got out of the way when that happened. Because he knew, he knew the tone, he saw the look, I'm getting out of here, it's not going to be a good thing. But, but as brothers, we fought. You know, as we become adults, there's four boys and one girl in our family. I remember a time when we all were together at one time, because I would go and what he did to me, I would take out on my little brothers. Um, we were sitting around one time at a family function, and, and I don't know who started it, but we all looked at each other as adults and said, you know what, I'm sorry for the way I treated you. As a, growing up as a kid, some of the things I did, I regret. Some of the things I did to you and things I said to you, and I'm sorry. And we kind of all did that as adults. You know, our family members know us best, don't they? Sometimes that's good, but a lot of times it's bad because all the blemishes we have are exposed. That happens in our own family. Folks, it also happens in a church family. You know that? A lot of you have been on a mission trip with me or to camp with me, and on Sunday morning I clean up pretty well. My hair is in place this morning, I think. But some of you have seen my hair in the morning. <laughs> you've seen me after we've been out working and sweating all day. Worse yet, you smelled me after we've been out working all day. It ain't pretty. Some of you have seen me lose my temper or have heard me say something unkind. It happens in a family, hurt that is. But in a family, you forgive. In a family, you look past those flaws. Friends will come and go, but family will be there even when it gets tough. That's what a church family ought to be. God's family needs to do that. Are you mature in Christ? Uh, or as you mature in Christ, you should be able to let those little things that go on in a family, you ought to be able to let them go. Yet so many times, we will throw away a relationship over pride. Over pride. 
You know, you hear of churches splitting because of the famous old green carpet story, right? Can I reassure you, churches do not split over green carpet. They split over who got to choose the green carpet. There's a difference because somebody's pride got in the way. I don't get to pick the color. I'm leaving. Do you think it's any accident that Peter put this near the top of the list of spiritual maturity? It is easy to have affection for a brother or sister when they act affectionately toward us, but all of us have bad days. All of us. All of us sometimes get in the flesh. And if we are mature, we can look put past that and past the little things that really don't matter in light of eternity. Folks, think about that. The things we get most upset about do not have one inkling of, of anything when it comes to where we sit down next to eternity and say, what? Let it go. Let that stuff go. Brotherly affection. That's the last one in verse 7. Uh, I'm sorry, is love, is love. Brotherly affection with love. Doesn't true love take on all these characteristics? I would encourage you to write down in your Bible right there where it says love, maybe make a line out to the edge and write in 1 Corinthians 13. And maybe sometime even today, it's only 13 verses, go and read 1 Corinthians 13 about what love for another believer, for Christians really is. Man, that'll challenge you. We don't have time to do it this morning, but I challenge you to do it. It describes the love that brothers and sisters in Christ should have for each other. Then listen closely to verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop right there for a minute. These qualities or characteristics that we don't just need, but ones, uh, they're ones that are continually needing to be improved upon. They're something we strive at. So if I'm reading this correctly, I am never going to have these things perfected in this life? That may be our first thought, but I don't think that's the point. The point is that we need to be in the struggle of working at these things, improving these things. The struggle to put away our flesh and striving to be more like Jesus. That is a continual process, folks. What happens if we give up on this? What happens when we let the flesh win? Look at verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. We talked about it at the beginning. We get rotten like that garbage that sat around. Peter says we become nearsighted. Now, I am actually nearsighted. My eyes are. If I took my contacts out right now, I could see to about right here. After that, y'all are like fuzzy blobs. I mean, I can't see. I'm nearsighted. But Peter is saying that when we stop struggling to be like Jesus, we begin to only see the things that matter to us. We're nearsighted. And Peter goes on to say, if we continue, we'll become what? Blind. Blind. Blindness is a permanent condition, folks. Could it be that a believer could become blind to the will of God and stop doing and serving Him permanently? 
Peter says that they have forgotten that they were even forgiven, cleansed from his former sins. That's the extent of their blindness. They don't even appreciate what God did for them when they were saved. In verse 10, Peter says, therefore. Here comes some instruction that we need to hear. Look at verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to conform uh, to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Get in the game or get back in the game. Now, does Peter say that a person who becomes nearsighted or blind won't go to heaven or will lose their salvation? It's not what he's saying here. But I wonder if we one of those 1 Corinthians 3.15 experiences, you know that passage, where a believer has spent his whole life living for himself and all he has to present at the feet of Jesus is wood, hay, and stubble, and under the test of, uh, under the test of fire, what happens? Poof, all of it's gone. There's nothing to leave at Jesus' feet because everything I've accumulated in this life is for me. But instead, what should we be striving for? That gold, that silver, those precious stones that when they're tested with fire, they remain, and they remain at the feet of Jesus to bring him more honor and glory. What are we doing? Are we in the game? Do we need to get back into the game? Look at verse 11. For in this way, there will be a be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Richly provided for you. Richly provided for you. When you enter the gates of heaven, don't you want to know that you gave it all in the game? You've heard the coach say, leave it all on the field. Folks, in essence, that's what God's saying here. Folks, leave it all on the field. What are you doing with your dash? Will you stand and will you bow your head with me? With your head bowed and your eyes closed, maybe you're here this morning and you've never been in the game. You've never made a decision to be in the game. Is God calling you this morning? The Holy Spirit is working on your heart And you know deep inside, Jesus is what you've been looking for. He's waiting for you with his arms open wide and calling for you to come to him just as you are. You can pray and trust him this morning right now where you're standing. Just talk to him honestly. Say something like this, God, I have made a mess of my life. I've been living it my way I'm ready to let that all go and follow you. I trust you, Jesus. I believe you came a long time ago, but through your power, you died on the cross that paid for the sins of those call out to you like I'm doing right now. I confess my sin. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to send the Holy Spirit to live inside me and to change me into a new creation. Thank you, God, for saving me. Some in here are dealing with nearsightedness and maybe even blindness. Aren't you glad we have a Savior that can cure both of those? Why don't you ask Jesus to let you see again? To see where He is at work so you can be a part. 
to see those around you who are in need of God's love through your love. Say, God, I want to get back into the game. Put me in, coach. I want to play. Is that your prayer this morning? God, you have gifted us. You have given us the gift of salvation for those of us in here that are believers. Maybe even some that made that decision this morning. God, we need to utilize those gifts you've given us. We need to tell people what you've done for us. God, we need to be about your will. I pray we would seek that. I pray you would maybe take away the nearsightedness or even the blindness that some of us are experiencing right now and get excited again about serving and doing and loving and being a part of your will, God. Help us. God, this week for Vacation Bible School, I pray as we go through these lessons each night that you would move among the people that come, that there would be many who see their need for salvation and make that decision this week. God, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.